sermon today is titled The World Premiere. We're going to be in John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Everyone here has a favorite television program that they watch. I'm sure some people like drama, some people like comedies, others may even like that thing of the devil called reality TV. Um, I say that as a joke. Um, all what these shows have in common is one thing. They all started out as something called a pilot. A pilot program is a program that is used to present to the studio executives and on the strength of that pilot, they decide if they're going to make a series out of this. So they put the pilot on TV, sometimes it's a movie, sometimes it's a, a special event. And then if it gets good ratings, they go on and they um, make a further series about that. And personally, I love medical dramas, particularly if they involve fire and rescue. As a matter of fact, I would say one of the biggest reasons I'm a paramedic today was because of the show called Emergency. Anybody remember that in the 70s, Johnny and Roy? I wanted to be Johnny and Roy. I wanted to be a paramedic. And that's one of the things that drove me to that. A few years ago, there was, and I like shows like that, and a few years ago there was a show called Trauma, and I set my DVR to watch it. And the show starts out, shows a rooftop rescue involving a medical helicopter coming to transport a patient that had been, I believe, electrocuted in the air conditioning unit. They got the patient on board the helicopter. Helicopter takes off a little bit and immediately goes straight down. Now, anybody that knows anything about medical helicopters know that that is not how they're supposed to take off. They take off, they go up about 100 feet, they circle around, check for obstructions, and then they take off to the direction they're going. So, of course, in the TV show, the medical uh, helicopter goes down, crashes into another helicopter, and they both crash, and you're kind of left wondering what happened to the crew. Well, the next scene shows a female paramedic doing something very inappropriate with her partner in the back of an ambulance. And I figured, well, based on the pilot of this show, I don't think this show is worth watching. You see, beginnings mean something. And when something starts out bad, you just know that that's probably not going to be redeemed in the eyes of people very well. But the same thing holds true to things that are good. If something has a great foundation, that shows that something really, really good is going to come from that. And in John chapter 2, we are witnessing the world premiere of Jesus' public ministry, beginning with his first miracle. Jesus, by doing this miracle, is setting the stage for what his ministry and his mission on earth are going to be about. Now, so far we saw from our last time together that he has called his first five disciples. And now he's attending a wedding in Cana, which is about nine miles away from his hometown of Nazareth. And that's where we pick up the story today in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus' disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. The mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for, by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding about from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. 
They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests had, drank, had too much to drink. But you have saved the best for now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glories and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Father God, we just ask, Lord, that you just take this incident in Jesus' life and show us just how awesome you are. Father, this was your world premiere moment for your son. And you used it to speak such depth into what Jesus' mission was, what his ministry was going to be, and who he was to us as our Lord, God, Savior, and King. I ask, Father, that as we go through this story today, that all of those titles will become more and more apparent to us. And we thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are several things about Jesus' first miracle that shows us what his ministry is going to be about. But keep that in mind, because first I have to deal with a question that may be rattling around a little bit in people's minds. This story in John chapter 2 is not a very popular one amongst those who believe that drinking alcohol is a sin. And honestly, as I was preparing this message, I wanted to ignore that part and just get to the main part of what I wanted to talk to you about this morning, but... As your pastor, I have to bring the whole counsel of God and not just the parts that make me feel comfortable. So I want to just briefly jump into the subject of alcohol and wine and, and, and beer and all that, just very briefly, and please hear me out. If you have any questions about this any further, just ask me after service. In John chapter 2, as well as other New Testament scriptures that deal with the subject of wine and alcohol, our fellowship, the Assemblies of God, and many other charismatic churches have, wanted, have tried to say over the years that Jesus didn't actually turn the water into wine. He turned it into a, a high class of grape juice. Now, they've said this throughout the years, but it's not being accurate with the Greek, Greek language, and they do all kinds of backflips around it to try to prove it. The reason that this happened, I think, is that the assemblies got their start in 1917 during the height of the temperance movement. The temperance movement was a movement that wanted to ban alcohol throughout the United States. And in 1920, it became very successful in passing a constitutional amendment that prohibited the sale or possession of alcohol in the United States. That lasted for 13 years until it was overturned in 1933. And since its inception, the assemblies have prohibited the consumption of alcohol by its ministers or any of its lay leadership in the church, and it strongly discouraged its use among the members. Recently, there have been several attempts at our general council to relax this prohibition within our fellowship to change the prohibition against alcohol, to just kind of pull it right out of the bylaws. However, at our last... General Council, the consumption of alcohol, tobacco, and other drugs were against added to the list of practices dis disapproved by our leadership. So that's what our official stance is as an Assembly of God church regarding alcohol. And that's what I, I am to teach. Now saying that, 
I want to make a logical argument here from the scriptures. If we would believe that we had to, that we were totally to abstain from any semblance of any alcohol, we would have to cut John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11 out of the Bible. It was not grape juice. The word, Greek word oinus is, means alcoholic wine. Any Greek scholar will tell you that. What the Bible does say about wine and alcohol is that it was be treated like anything else in life, with an eye toward pleasing God in all things. For many people, and many people would tell you here, that means for them, they will never touch a drop of alcohol. And I say, good, God bless you. If that is what your conscience is telling you to do, you should do that. I am not encouraging anyone here to start drinking alcohol. You would do well to trust and follow the Holy Spirit in this circumstances. However, there are others here that I know that they see this as a liberty that they enjoy, and they do so responsibly. And they avoid the overconsumption or drunkenness. And if they do that, they are not sinning. So if you don't drink now, don't start, and don't look upon those who, down upon those who do. And if you do drink now, do so responsibly and remember not to offend your brothers and sisters who might have a conviction about drinking. The scriptural guideline from the church in the New Testament that had problems with this idea of personal freedom versus legalism was this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block for the weak. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that a person who, who believes in abstinence from alcohol is weak. It just simply means that they have that conviction. Paul is, just, is using kind of a wordplay here in the Corinthian church. In other words, if you are a, problem that has no, or a person that has no problem with having a glass of wine after work or with a meal or, or social drinking, you have the scriptural right to do so. What you do not have is permission to do it in front of other people who have a problem with it. If you know darn well that this person has a, has a strong conviction against the use of alcohol, you have no right to throw that in their face because you have a freedom to do so. For example, if you invite a known alcoholic to dinner and you give him or her a, a glass of beer or wine, that's sin. Likewise, if you know that this person has a strong conviction against the consumption of alcohol, you are sinning if you try to offer it to them. But the same thing applies to those who have that heart conviction that alcohol is evil. You should not think of yourself more highly than the other person who does not. Rejoice in their freedom, but stay true to your conscience about this. One final scripture from Corinthians before we return to our regular scheduled programming in this sermon. Paul said this in Corinthians. He said, I have the right to do anything but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Personally, this is how I treat alcohol. I treat it like a loaded gun. Now, if I use a loaded gun correctly, I can take it out into the woods, shoot a deer, bring food home to my family. The act of hunting brings me joy. And like anything else God has blessed us with, if you use it correctly, it brings glory to God. Now, believe it or not, there are Christians in the church who would look at me and say, I'm a barbarian for hunting an animal with a gun. I have that freedom. I have that liberty. If you misuse a loaded firearm, 
That's when it causes death and severe disability to those around you. And that's why I kind of use that analogy when it comes to alcohol. And again, if you have any questions or concerns about this or anything I said today, please see me after the service and we can talk, talk it through a little bit more. Again, I'm not saying if, if you have a conviction that you're wrong. I'm not saying if you don't have a conviction you're wrong. I'm just saying what the Bible says plain throughout the entire Bible about this. Now in Jesus' day, we're going back to the subject at hand, the premiere of Jesus' ministry. In Jesus' day, in the first century A.D., Weddings were huge. This was an entire community event. This is not something that you would just go on a Saturday, spend an hour at a ceremony, a couple hours at a reception, and then go home. They would usually get married either on Sunday or Monday so they could spend the entire week together basically partying with this new couple, and they would be fed, they would be given things to drink, they would even be given clothes in some cases. And this was a week-long event that would end by Friday night so they could celebrate their Sabbath. Now, how big and how well the guests at the wedding were treated reflected on the groom's social standing and his ability to support his new bride. Since these people were staying with the new bride and groom for several days, weddings were very, very expensive. These things, you want to know why the divorce rate was like zero in Old Testament times? It's because of this. Imagine paying for three or four of those. I mean, this, this was very expensive. So the guest list was very, very carefully managed. Because if it wasn't carefully managed, it would bankrupt that couple who had to pay for this. And that's the first thing I want to bring up and show you. Is that Jesus was invited to a wedding. Jesus was invited and I bring this up because sometimes in our desire to live holy, we lose opportunities to be salt and light to our, to our world, to our neighbors, to our co-workers. We lose that because we believe in this kind of radical separation sometimes. And I once had a guy who became my partner on the ambulance who was a very strong Christian. He came from California. His name was Dave. He called himself Dude. Because that's the way he said everything. He had that California thing. Everything was like, dude. During a time in my life that I heard God's call into the ministry. And the church that we attended at that time preached that radical separation that I was talking about a moment ago. And they preached that you shouldn't, you know, we don't smoke, we don't chew, we don't hang with those who do. We don't get anywhere near sinners. You know, those, those people, you know, will be over there by themselves. We shouldn't integrate with them at all. That's, that's kind of what our first church was preaching at that time. And so I was known as a holy roller. I was, I was um, a person that people really couldn't relate with because I didn't really, really want to relate with them. In fact, everybody knew me as a holy roller, and once Dave became my partner, we were actually known as the God Squad. And it was kind of funny in the middle of the night, because one of our dispatchers really got into calling us the God Squad. She, in the middle of the night, after the owner went to sleep and wasn't listening to the radio anymore, she would be like, Dispatch calling God Squad. Dispatch calling God Squad. There's a person who needs your salvation at, you know, 310 Water Street with Lake Geneva Fire Department. Respond there immediately. You know, she would be doing stuff like that. And as funny as that was, it still came at a price for both of us, is that both of us were completely unrelatable to everybody we worked with. No one really knew how to talk to us. No one would, would want to have fun around us. 
We never got invited to parties. We never got invited to even a kid's graduation. And we were excluded from almost all the social invites that our coworkers would, would offer to people. But you notice, though, that wasn't the case with Jesus. Jesus, the holiest man who ever lived, got invited to all the parties. Sinners invited him to their parties. If there would have been heroin meth addicts back then, they would have invited him to their parties. Tax collectors invited him. Pharisees invited him. A prostitute invited him. Jesus was number one on everyone's must-have guest list. Now, how can the holiest man that ever lived get invited to parties with people who lived extremely sinful lives? How did that happen? Because your sense of personal holiness should always be tempered with humility and with love. Because holiness without love is sinful pride and legalism. And those things will turn off this world more than anything and ruin your effectiveness for the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus loved people first. Let me say that again. Jesus, our God, our Savior, our example, loved people first. It doesn't matter where they were in life. It doesn't matter what they were involved with or how they were living their lives at that time. Jesus' love was so contagious that everyone wanted him around. Even if they were in the midst of sinning at that time, they still wanted Jesus there. I think sometimes we can get so wound up in our selfish pursuit of an external holiness that we forget that the first fruit of the Holy Spirit is not to separate from the world. The first fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians, is love. It's love. It's agape, self-sacrificing love. It means that sometimes you may have to lay down your preferences for the sake of the soul of the person you're trying to reach. That is what agape love is. Love isn't love if it has no desire to be shared with others. Now, I'm not saying that we should go where there's rampant sin and join in. I'm not saying we join in. I am not saying that. Please understand, I am not saying that if you go to a party and somebody's smoking pot and they pass it to you, that you should take a hit. I'm not saying anything like that. I just encourage you to think twice about how you present yourself to the world because how you present yourself reflects the Savior that you say you follow. Second thing I want to talk about this morning is that Jesus' first miracle foreshadowed his entire ministry. Now Mary comes to Jesus with a problem. They're out of wine. This would have been hugely embarrassing to the groom. You want to talk about a social faux pas of that time? That would have been the biggest one you could have had. Now to put this into perspective, all of us live in a small town, right? How long do people in this town remember the mistakes you have made? Forever. Right? Yeah, forever. Right? So three years ago, I joined the fire department. We're coming back from a training, and they asked me to back in a fire truck. Now, I didn't have my glasses on because I had been wearing my mask. And as I was backing in, the light caught me in the eyes, and I turned a little bit too sharply, and just there's a little bit of diamond plate on a step, scraped it on the inside of that. 
So I scraped a little bit of diamond plate. It wasn't a big deal. We pounded it back out and it looks just fine. But guess what happens every time I walk anywhere near a driver's seat? Hey, chief, is the insurance paid up? Look out, crash is about to drive. <laughs> you know, just different things like that. This last Tuesday, they were, they were yelling stuff like that out at me. And it was just guys, you know, giving me grief. And that's just, you know, what us guys do. But yeah, they'll be doing it in my retirement, exactly. Now multiply that times 10, and that's what this young couple is facing by running out of wine at a wedding. Jesus' answer to his mother seems a bit harsh, doesn't it, when it's translated into modern English. I mean, if, if I walk up to any lady here in the congregation and I start the conversation by saying, woman, what does that sound like? It sounds like it's, I'm about to like, lay down some law. Does it sound like I'm about to become harsh with somebody? Yeah. See, but it, it doesn't translate very well into English. A modern way of Jesus saying is, is saying is that it's a gesture of respect. In essence, what he's saying is, ma'am, why are you involving me in this? He goes, this is not my purpose. My purpose is, is not to come to earth to be a, a great wine distributor in Galilee. My, my purpose is to come and, and, and save people, not, not, not get involved in this little kind of stuff. And, and I kind of, you know, when I read the Bible, I, I, I kind of try to picture what was going on. And I could just imagine Mary at this point kind of going up to Jesus and saying, oh, you're such a cute little boy. And then turning to the servant and said, do what he says. You know, I mean, what, what man can say no to their mom, right? So Jesus agrees to meet the needs of this young couple. And that's the first lesson of the first miracle. You know, sometimes I think we limit God to the big things and forget that he hear, wants to hear about the headaches. He wants to hear about the colds. He wants to hear about the disagreement you had with your spouse. He wants to, to know about the jerk who cut you off in traffic. Not that he's going to go get them, but maybe he can change your heart so you don't think he's a jerk anymore. But I also want to point out that there's also a ton of symbolism that points to the purpose, though, of Jesus' first miracle. And let's look at some of that. The significance of, of this miracle points to Jesus' whole ministry, and we see it in the specific items mentioned in the story. The first thing we saw is the stone jars. Stone jars represent the law, the law that was written into tablets of stone. The whole existence of these jars containing water was to show that this family was obedient to the law of Moses. It was a sign to the Jews that they needed God's cleansing in their lives. And they had all these rituals that had to deal with how to wash their hands, how to wash their linen, how to wash their pots and pans, how to wash everything in their life with water. And they had to do the, all these rigid requirements to show that they were living under, in a way that was pleasing to God under the Old Testament system. But then Jesus came. Jesus is the living stone. Jesus is the cleanser. Jesus is the mediator that came to fulfill the law so we don't have to uh, trust in our own effort to win God's approval. Hebrews 8.6 puts it this way, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs as a covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. 
Jesus is standing there saying, I am the cleansing. I am the purifying. I am the one who makes you whole. You don't have to be empty with a heart of stone. I'm going to give you a new heart of flesh. And if you trust in me and follow me, will help lead you to eternal life. And the second item I want us to look at today is the wine. We talked about the wine a few moments ago in communion. Wine's uses and symbolism is seen in many ways. Now, wine was a staple in a Jewish Old Testament household. And often they in fact, often they drank wine more than water because it kept longer and, and it was safer to drink than the water at the time. And he lived in an arid climate. It was sometimes just easier to get than water. It was so much a part of Jewish life that the rabbis had a common saying that said, without wine, there is no joy. Wine was also used medicinally. It was used to, to cleanse wounds. It was used to um, help relax people. In fact, um, wine was Paul's prescription for Timothy to deal with his anxiety and his stomach issues. He said, take a little bit of wine to help you with that. We see here that wine was used at wedding feasts as a sign of God's covenant. In Jewish wedding, the blessing is pronounced at, um, as sips of wine are given to both the bride and the groom out of the same cup. They, they utter seven different blessings. And at the end of the ceremony, the groom will throw down the cup and stomp on it breaking it, indicating that these two lives have now become one. Wine will be used in our future. Do you know that we all have to drink wine someday? If you are a Christian and you get raptured, you will drink it at the wedding supper of the Lamb. It says that in the Bible. Finally, Jesus was drinking wine at the Last Supper. Remember, Passover was one of their most holy days of the year. The law demanded that the best was used to honor God. Therefore, the wine used in this observance would have been of the highest quality and blessed by a rabbi. And its symbolism is this for us today. The Holy Spirit is our new wine. People who, who, who over-imbibe with alcohol and, and really love alcohol and, and use it to excess in, in a sinful way, do it to have a sense of peace, a sense of relaxation, and a sense of joy. But that is a counterfeit to what God wants to give us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because only in God is fullness of joy. And God will never give you a hangover. And finally, the color of wine represented the blood that was shed for your sins and mine. Jesus said that he will not... Drink of the fruit of the vine until all is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And what a day that will be. Amen. Finally, I want, to look at, I want you to look at the amounts of wine being talked about. There was up to 180 gallons of water sitting there. Think about that. 180 gallons of wine that Jesus just made. There is no way that even a Wisconsin-based wedding could go through that much wine. There is no way that we could even drink that here in this state. But what Jesus did through this miracle is show that he is their provider. He said, he meet, he's, you see, he met that immediate need of the day. And Jesus wants to be your provider and show you that there is no need that's so insignificant that you shouldn't bother him with it. You should always go to him. However, Jesus' provision lasted much longer than just that moment. Remember I said there was 180 gallons of wine? So let's say they, they just drank a third of it. Now there's 135 gallons left. 
I researched this a little bit. Now, we're not talking about wine that you buy at a grocery store. Remember, a professional wedding planner here said this was the best wine he had ever tasted. So I looked it up. The best wine sells for about $250,000 a bottle. Upwards toward a million if it's really, really rare. Now, wine traditionally comes in a bottle containing 750 milliliters, which is about a fifth of a gallon. Let's just use the low number. So you would need five of these bottles to make a gallon. That's 675 gallons. Or excuse me, 675 bottles. So that would be worth, just using the low number of what valuable wine would be, $169 million that he just provided for this couple. Do you think that might have blessed them? That's, that's 21st century money. With 2,000 years of inflation in Jesus' time, that was probably more money that was even in existence at that time. So do you get the picture of the immense gift that Jesus gave to this couple? He just didn't meet their need for the moment. He met their need forever. Those are the kind of gifts that our God, our Lord, and our Savior gives us. You see all the symbolism behind this? The incredible meaning behind Jesus changing the water into wine and why he chose this as his first public miracle? Because if Jesus could do this with a common substance like wine, think about also what he did for our salvation. Think about how sure that is. He not only saved us when you first bent the knee, he continues to bring you into salvation. He continues to work his, his passion and his power and his presence and his personality into your life. It's not just that one-time thing. It's this continuous working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let's all rise. You know, our salvation is locked and secured in Jesus as long as we continue to follow him. And I said today that I believe that there was the reason that we were going to actually have communion right now. But I believe that there was a few people here that were dealing with guilt and, and shame and, and things that have happened in their past. And I just want to assure you today that the same Jesus that changed water into wine can change your situation into something that benefits the kingdom of God. Yes, God can even use your sin. Not that he wants you to stay in it, but he can use it to mature you, to humble you, and put you into a position where you can help others with that situation.